0: Hello and welcome to Beyond Sustainability, the podcast all about remediating and restoring our environment. Brought to you by Newfields Environmental Consultancy. I'm your host Richard Williams and in this episode I'm going to be discussing PFAS, a complex and ever-expanding group of manufactured chemicals that over the last few years have become a major environmental concern. Joining me in this discussion is Dr. Mark Benotti. A Newfield senior environmental chemist and part of Newfield's environmental forensics team. Mark, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Richard. All right, so let's start with a bit of background. Um so what the 10 PFAS has been sort of well known throughout the environmental industry over the last few years. Um but for anyone who's still unclear on what they are, could you briefly explain like what PFAS is, please?
1: Sure. PFAS is a class of compounds. It stands for per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. And what you have to realize that is that as a class of compounds, it includes many, many different known structures, and there are many, many different purported structures as well. The numbers that are tossed around right now are in the thousands, so there are thousands of known or purported stru- PFAS structures out there. And one of the challenges is that we'll get into later on in the podcast is that when you actually start to go out and measure what's in the environment and and states and, and the federal agencies in the United States regulate PFAS, they're only regulating a small fraction, one or two or a handful of compounds. And labs can only measure for up to a few dozen compounds. And so they're probably the most impactful PFAS, but they're only a small part of a large family of structures that are out there.
0: Wow. So it, it sounds as though we've only just sort of started scratching the surface of potentially the impacts of PFAS. So where have they originated from? Why why were they made?
1: Sure. So, so PFAS, all PFAS molecules were made in a laboratory. Um, the characteristic that unites all PFAS molecules is a carbon-fluorine bond. And I say that because that does not exist in nature. It is a man-made bond. And so PFAS are manufactured compounds. When you see a PFAS structure in the environment, it, or something it degraded from, was manufactured in a laboratory uh, somewhere. PFAS was actually accidentally discovered um, back in 1938. There was a DuPont scientist who was working with some new refrigerants, and he left some of these refrigerants under pressure and chilled overnight in in a container. And when he opened... The cylinder the next morning there wasn't the gas that he put in there the night before but there was this waxy structure material that he had the he had the wherewithal to actually characterize and discovered some of the slipperiest material <laughs> known to man at that time and it had all these other um unique properties too it was uh, resistant to heat it didn't break down and so he, what he had actually discovered was what we now call teflon and that's the first discovery of PFAS in, in 1938. When you talk about uses, um, there are many uses today that grew out of, of that accidental discovery um, because, and I'll go through them briefly, The uh, because of the unique properties of this material that, that uh, was discovered. The first application was actually during World War II as part of the Manhattan Project. This new dis- newly discovered material is so um, resistant to oxidation and to high temperature the, the tubes that were used to uh, to enrich uranium, to make the first nuclear weapons that were used during World War II. Um, you have to enrich uranium in a, in a form that is very uh, reactive. And so this was one of the only materials that they could line these metal tubes with that would not corrode the tubes. And so after World War II, uh, the first commercial applications of PFAS were uh, in the form of Teflon, um, DuPont, uh, patented that material shortly after the war and in the 1940s and by I think by the 1950s they were selling um they were selling Teflon lined pans these were now pans that people could they were non-stick and many of them are still used today um, non-stick surfaces that allowed people to you know made cleanup a lot easier and they they absolutely improved how the ease of cooking and things like that um, in the 1960s um, a few things happened. I think the first food contact material was developed. Food contact materials are PFAS that are used to impregnate paper and cardboard to keep things from getting greasy. So, for example, when you go get a pizza and you pick up a slice of pizza, it's got sometimes it's got grease dripping off of it. But if you look at the box, the box often only has a very small grease stain. Sometimes it doesn't have any grease stain. And if you actually step back and try to match up what you're seeing in the food with what's on the, pe- what's on the pizza box, it doesn't really make sense. The reason is that pizza box is often impregnated with PFAS, and it repels water and grease. And so this is a great product for, um, for treating food surfaces. Um, it was used to treat textiles and leather and so shoes and other textiles were, were treated with things like scotch this is a 3m patent but it's a pfas chemical that repels both water and grease and so now all of a sudden textiles became stain resistant and leather shoes became water and, and stain resistant and um and then lastly AFFF aqueous film forming foams were developed as a joint research project between 3M and the the military in the United States in the 1960s. And they were they were developing a material that could put out fires quickly. This material is, you know, has uh, the active ingredient is it in it is PFAS. And um, in 1968, there was a very famous um, fire aboard the USS Forestall, and um more than 100 sailors died in that fire and many, many more were injured. And it was that fire that was a catalyst for the Navy to require all ships moving forward to carry AFFF. And shortly thereafter, the military bases started keeping AFFF on site. And then things moved very quickly into the private sector and oil refineries and oil storage terminals stored and used and trained with AFFF. And then lastly, Fire stations, especially fire stations in area where there might be industry and oil present, um, started keeping AFFF on hand. And so AFFF was a was a great discovery, and it's absolutely saved lives. But it's based on PFAS, and its widespread use today has led to a lot of a lot of contamination. Wow.
0: So I'm surprised. So they've been around since the 1930s, like I said, and they seem to have a huge number of uses. Why is it now that there's a reason to be concerned. What is it about PFAS now which is concerning people?
1: The bottom line is that these things show up certain chemicals within mm-hmm. the family of PFAS, specifically PFOA, which stands for perfluorooctanoic acid or perfluorooctanoate depending on the form that it's in, or PFOS, which stands for perfluorooctane sulfonic acid or perfluorooctane sulfonate depending on which form it's in. They show up in places that they probably shouldn't show up. If you're if you're manufacturing a chemical, you want it to do what it's supposed to do and then go away and not end up in places like human blood, for example. This is one place where PFAS including but not limited to PFOA and PFOS has shown up. Um it's shown up in um animals throughout the throughout the United States, especially in areas proximate to where it's used or manufactured, but it's also shown up in areas far removed from development the polar bears for example around the north pole and if you look at the concentrations in animals there is evidence that the concentrations in higher order animals are are greater than the amount of pfas in their diet so at least some of these chemicals bioaccumulate and that that is a concern for scientists so we know we know these things show up where they're not supposed to But if you also think about how they're designed, they are engineered to resist a petroleum fire that's burning at hundreds, if not thousands of degrees and still do their work the way that they are designed to do. And so if you think about something that's designed to sit sit on the surface of a frying pan or be sprayed onto a burning petroleum fire, it's not surprising that that same chemical, once it makes its way into groundwater or makes its way into surface water or soil or air, it doesn't break down. In other words, these things are designed to resist breaking down in the most extreme temperature and oxidative conditions. And when you when you just charge it into the environment where the normal conditions are much, much more mild, they don't break down uh, that much. And so some fraction of the PFAS will degrade and transform, but they all end up in these terminal structures, perfluoroalkyl acids, which ultimately are the compounds that we measure for and the compounds that are regulated. And so um you, you know the 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 those thousands of compounds that are out there even though we can only measure a small fraction of them we are measuring the things that pers- we think that persist the longest and that are these terminal degradation products of other PFAS. And so those are the those terminal degradation products. Some of them like PFOA were used um were used to manufacture Teflon. Some of them are impurities in products that were manufactured, and some of them are degradation products. So if you find PFOA in the environment, it, you know, it could have come from it could have been used originally as is in manufacture, it could have been an impurity in a fluorosurfactant that was used in AFFF, or it could have been it could have degraded from some other larger molecule. That, um, that we can't yet measure. And so it's, it's a really challenging thing, especially when you get into source attribution because you know, you have, you have these three different bins of PFAS all degrading to the same group of compounds that we measure. And it becomes very hard in some cases anyway to trace back concentrations of individual PFAS analytes that may, or, that may be problematic for any number of reasons to where they came from.
0: How how do you actually test for them then? You know,
1: that's, been, that's where there's been a lot of advancement in the last, I'd say, you know, 15 years. Um, the, there were no standard methods not that long ago. So in 2009, the first standard method for measuring PFAS was published. And that was EPA method 537. And that was developed for drinking water. Um, and so some labs were used it as it's written for drinking water. Other labs that wanted to measure surface water or groundwater or even soils or tissues took that method and, and changed it around. It's no longer Method 537 because of the way that method was developed, but they had all the requisite QA/QC to know that they were doing, the, you know, doing things properly, and the method was robust, sensitive, and defensible. And, um, you know, so there were laboratory proprietary methods that grew up out of that 537 method. And over time, since 2009, what you've seen is that laboratories have improved their methods based on the availability of standards. And so let's step back to when I said before that it's a challenge because we have thousands of known or purported structures out there, and we only have a few dozen that we routinely measure. The bottleneck is the availability of standards. So in order to measure something in the environment, sensitively and defensively, you need a standard from, from a laboratory that's manufactured it. Many of the PFAS that are out there are proprietary and therefore there are no standards available to measure for them. And so the lab the meth laboratories are kind of handicapped by what those standards that they can get their, their hands on. And so if you look at the number of analytes over the last fifteen or so years that laboratories can measure for, um, it started with PFOS and PFOA, the two compounds I measured, and then an increase to you know a few more a few more perfluoroalkyl acids, and then there are some other structures that are precursors of PFOS. Um, there are some fluorotalamer sulfonates, and I apologize for the technical term, but the point is that as we add more and more analytes, it's only because of the availability of those standards from uh from, from other laboratories. And so that trend will continue. Um, there will be more analytes that we get our hands on and we build into methods. But it's a very dynamic situation because at the same time, there are regulations going in place that are phasing out or prohibiting the use of certain analytes. For example, PFOA PFOA was phased out of use in the United States uh, as part of the 2010-2015 PFOA stewardship program, resulted in more than a 99% reduction in in, in PFOA being used or in structures that can degrade to PFOA in materials. And so... That tap, let's say that tap has been turned off, but companies have moved to other different structures to replace it because they still have a need to, for, for a chemical that behaves that way in a manufacturing process. And so when companies move to something else, then we, we, we kind of restart the process of, are there standards available? If not, we have to look for them with really complicated techniques, figure out what the structure is, and then manufacture those standards, and then go back to samples and analyze for them. And so it, it becomes this game of whack-a-mole where you finally develop a method that can measure what you're looking for, and maybe a company shifts away from using it and uses something else. And then you have to look for it, develop a standard, and rewrite, uh, rewrite the method to incorporate for that new compound. So it's a really challenging um It's a really challenging playing field for the analytical chemists that measure the work and the scientists that are trying to keep track of all the changes in use of PFAS and and what those impacts may be.
0: So you mentioned some of the original producers of PFAS have now moved into new chemicals producing alternatives that where the labs are nowhere near being able to test for. Can you elaborate on some of that, please?
1: Sure. Sure. there, there are a few different examples. Perhaps the, the best example is um, PFOA was manufactured by 3M and used by DuPont to manufacture Teflon. In 2000, um, 3M stopped manufacturing PFOA, but DuPont started to manufacture, I believe DuPont started to manufacture PFOA, continued to use it. And then in the ensuing decade or so, they, they decided to, all manufacturers and users of PFOA decided to phase out PFOA. And so there was this was a voluntary phase out done in conjunction with the US EPA. DuPont was one of eight different companies that 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 took on this uh, effort. And DuPont specifically switched to a family of chemicals called Gen X. These are a few different structures that all degrade to the uh, all change form into a similar structure in the environment. And it it is a PFAS compound, but it's a little bit different in that where PFOA has a carbon backbone that has fluorine off of it. This structure is a little bit different in that it has a carbon backbone with an oxygen atom in the middle of the backbone. And so structurally, it's different than PFOA. It's a little bit smaller as well, but in the manufacturing process, it, 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 it it's a polymer processing aid that behaves as well. It behaves functionally uh, as well as PFOA in such that they they can still manufacture Teflon with it. And so so DuPont stopped using PFOA in the process, but they started using Gen X. And so now we're seeing Gen X contamination in and around sites like Fayetteville, North Carolina is a, is a very famous uh, manufacturing facility where Gen X is manufactured and used. And there are, there are others. But um. That's one chemical that standards do exist for and has been incorporated into standard methods. There are other companies that have switched away from PFOA or similar structure long chain compounds and are using proprietary structures that you know most labs can't measure for. Um, there was a recent paper that came out in Science um, that talked about detecting challenging structures in New Jersey soils. And they think that some of these structures are stemming from changes made at a manufacturing facility in New Jersey. Um, they they moved away from PFNA, which is the nine carbon analog of PFOA. Um, they moved away from that and moved into these proprietary structures. The challenge there is that we don't we don't we can't get hand we can't get access to standards. So all we can do is measure with really, really expensive equipment that doesn't exist in most commercial applications. Um, and um, it's not practical from a long-term monitoring program, it's not practical from a remediation standpoint.
0: So going, going back a little bit, how, how therefore has, has PFAS got into the environment? Why are we seeing it now? If, if it was produced for Teflon and other
1: uses, sure.
0: do we know why it's, it's, it's now suddenly everywhere?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, it, a lot of PFAS was made. I, I don't know what the number is in terms of tons or anything like that, but it's it's quite a bit. And if you look at um, drinking water in the United States, drinking waters were measured between, I believe it was 2012 and 2015, to look for new classes of chemicals that might be contaminating water supplies. There were six PFAS that were on that, that list, the third round of the unregulated contaminant monitoring program. And they did find PFOA, PFOS, and a few other PFAS in in, in some water supplies. It wasn't everywhere, but the methods had fairly high detection limits. So if you went back today and measured the same water with lower detection limits, it would be in more places. But that's not as important as what People did with the data afterwards. They looked at where were these hot spots of contamination and what were the most likely sources are in and around those areas. And what they found were that there were three, three major sources on a, you know, on a national scale: military bases, airports, and wastewater treatment plants. And so the first two, if you look at why PFAS contamination would have come from those sources, it's AFFF use. Military bases and airports store AFFF on site, and many of them train with AFFF. So it's not just when a when when there's a fire they respond with AFFF. They are actively training using AFFF regularly. And a lot a lot of the more contaminated Department of Defense sites are firefighting training operations at a military facility. The third one, wastewater treatment plants, also makes sense because these are. These are kind of aggregates of everything that goes down the drain, or if you're in older cities, also down the storm drain. And, um, you know, these wastewater treatment plants aggregate from a large sewer shed, and wastewater treatment plants are designed to remove organic matter. They're designed to remove certain other chemicals. They are not designed to remove PFAS. PFAS are a lot more water-soluble than other classes of contaminants, and they don't break down. And so... The PFAS ends up, some of it goes out in the aqueous phase, some of it goes out through the biosolids, and that those biosolids may be applied to land for agricultural purposes, although that practice is becoming less common. And so um, those are the major sources on a national scale of PFAS. But when you zoom in on any one state or any one city, there are of course more um, localized sources. And so other sources include oil refineries, oil storage facilities. Electroplating uh, facilities, uh, PFAS was used as a mist suppressant or is used as a mist suppressant during that process. Semiconductor manufacture, it's part of the etching process. This chemical is part of the etching process to manufacture small semiconductors um, and uh, tanneries as well. I mentioned I mentioned um, waterproofing and stainproofing before. There are some sites in the United States where where PFAS was used uh, to manufacture um. Textiles and shoes and and things like that. And so, on a national scale, the the, the most common sources are A triple F use wastewater treatment plants. But as you get local, there may be other individual sources as well. Landfills is another one that's that, that's a potential uh, widespread source.
0: Okay, so it, it sounds like it's a lot of the a lot of it has come from humans actively just spraying it for either practicing to put out fires, putting out fires, or or, or utilizing it as a spray for certain industrial purposes.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, so so AFFF is, of course, applied to, to the environment, firefighting, training, or to respond to an actual fire. Um, wastewater treatment plants, kind of everything that goes down the drain, it aggregates that way. Um, there are personal care products that had Teflon in them. Um, there are fewer these days, but not long ago, sunscreens and some makeups had Teflon in them, so when you washed off, that stuff would go down the drain. When you landfills and wastewater treatment plants, these types of things that that aggregate waste yeah. from, you know, municipal or industrial-like areas um, are often kind of where PFAS gets channeled and bottlenecked through.
0: So if if say if you were a, a landowner or a environmental professional right now, and you were worried about PFAS or, or, or sort of a PFAS in the back of mind, and you're working on sites. Is there anything which could be a red flag for these sort of people? Sure, sure. So let's check for PFAS. That could be a potential.
1: Yeah. So if you you think about AFFF use, for example, if you're proximate to a military base or an oil refinery or an oil storage facility um, or an airport, those are candidate locations for AFFF. Mm -hmm. There are also firefighting training facilities that many states run that are AFFF um, sources. So those are the types of things to look for. Um, if you're near a manufacturing facility, especially you know, one of the manufacturing facilities of one of these companies that's a party to this PFOA stewardship rule, and there are eight of them, 2010, 2015 PFOA stewardship program, you can see the eight signatory companies. Um, if you're approximate to any of those companies, you know you want to take a look at what, what was going on at that particular manufacturing facility near wastewater treatment plant discharge, or near landfills, those are, again, these are these things that aggregate waste that often contains PFAS. Um, and lastly, you know, on a smaller scale, if you're near a, a metal plating facility or a semiconductor manufacturer, you know, those are also locations that, that can contribute PFAS contamination.
0: Are you happy for anybody listening to, to contact you if, if they have questions about PFAS? Oh, absolutely. Site? yeah.
1: Absolutely, one of the things that that we've done for a number of our clients, and we have industrial clients, we have state government uh, clients, and, and we have we work with academics as well. Um, one of the things that we've done is really taken a hard look at the history of what we know about all the different chemicals that are manufactured in a triple f's for example, and or in other in other products, and as well as when those products were on the market and what to the extent we can determine what their market share was. And so that's really valuable information to when you start to answer the question, you know, do I have exposure at this particular
0: site? So how does PFAS get into the environment then?
1: Sure. So there are a number of ways these things can get into the environment. Um, We talked about AFFF, so certainly using AFFF to respond to a fire, but more commonly just to practice or train with AFFF. So, AFFF firefighting sites where things are discharged, things hit the, this, these foams hit the ground, some amount sticks with the soil, but some amount of the more water-soluble components, typically the things that we measure, do bleed out down through the Beto zone and into groundwater, and they transport great distances with groundwater. Um, they get into the environment through wastewater treatment plant discharge. So, some amount of the PFAS is discharged with the aqueous phase some amount of the PFAS ends up with biosolids. And if those biosolids are, are landfilled or historically, they, some of them were used to apply, they were applied to agricultural settings to amend soils. um, PFAS can enter the environment that way. And lastly, atmospheric. Um, A lot of manufacturing facilities, a lot of the, the release has been, um, well, there've been many ways that, 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 uh, PFAS is released through manufacturing, but one of the one of the significant ones is is um, through atmospheric discharge. And so we we see cases or in and around manufacturing facilities where um, PFAS goes up the smokestack, so to speak, and it spreads out and it can travel great distances, miles and miles, um, where there's kind of this ubiquitous signature around the facility um, that slowly rains out down onto soils and contaminates groundwater that way. By again, once it's on soils leaking down through the Vado zone and trickling out. The challenge with atmospheric um, sources is that some of the stuff that's released falls under that category of things that we can't measure or can't routinely measure. And so, a lot of the, the atmospheric deposition of um, perfluoroalkyl acids, perfluorocarboxylic acids to be specific, is hypothesized to stem from um, fluorotelomer alkyl precursors. Um, and so these are things that are not on, not commonly measured. They're more volatile, so they go up, in, they go up um, into the atmosphere, and then they degrade in the atmosphere and then rain out as uh, perfluorocarboxylic acids. And that, that that's hypothesized to contribute to kind of this more widespread background signature that you get, um, you know, in in industrial areas or around a manufacturing facility in particular.
0: All right. So my sounds is though we've spent the last sort of seventy years pumping this stuff into the environment, what have we got? Now, what are our options now for remediating it? How, how do we remove it from the environment now?
1: Sure. So as a class of compounds, PFAS is a little bit different than other classes that we've dealt with in the past. Um, typically, they are more water-soluble than other classes of contaminants that that we, we are concerned about, um, like PCBs, for example. So when we treat them, the... Um, the best way to treat them is with with uh, adsorptive properties. So things like activated carbon is a common treatment technology to protect drinking water. When you have a contaminated site, you, if it's contaminated groundwater, for example, that groundwater is usually removed, and rather than being pumped into distribution systems directly, it will probably pass over an activated carbon or two activated carbon beds, and you monitor those beds to make sure they're working properly, and and once all the adsorption sites are taken up, that carbon is spent, you remove the carbon, you replace it with new carbon, and you continue the process. When you move into more contaminated sites, getting closer to source areas, um, you may have to add another adsorption step, ion exchange. Ion exchange is a little bit more expensive Um, and, um, but it's meant for treating higher concentrations of PFAS, and so usually ion exchange will go in front of activated carbon for more contaminated sites, but it's the same idea. The water passes over a surface, um, the the PFAS is adsorbed, and you get cleaner water coming out. That water is further polished with carbon, and then it can go and be distributed for for drinking water supply. there are when you when you're talking about remediating a site itself and not protecting drinking water per se, but remediating source area, excavation is one that people will excavate like soil around a firefighting training pad, for example, and that soil may be incinerated or, or sent off for, for, for landfilling, depending on where you are there. are But then there are regulations about how you can dispose of that contaminated soil. Um, and then lastly, there are a number of technologies that are kind of almost ready for prime time. And these these exist. These technologies vary. Um, some of them are destructive properties. So you're taking some really high energy chemistry and breaking apart those bonds that are otherwise really hard to break apart. Um, but for and, and you know, if people have questions, they can reach out directly. But, you know, there's no there's no kind of. Um, there's no recipe to follow. Usually, it's a site-specific solution to what the contamination looked like, what the levels are, and what sort of receptors are you trying to protect. And you know, there are a number of tools in the toolbox to remediate based on those those key aspects of of the
0: situation. So you mentioned excavation there. Did, does the PFAS always move, or prefers to move into the um aqueous phase or can it be, can it bond to clays and things like that? Can it bond to soils? Yeah,
1: great, great question. And the answer is um it's not a complete answer because again, the nature of the issue is most of the PFAS that's in an A triple F is in these proprietary structures that we can't measure. We have a sense that those proprietary structures have a greater tendency to bond to soils than some of the perfluoroalkyl acids that may be in there as impurities, as trace level impurities, or that may form upon degradation of these proprietary structures. And so, you, I mean, the science is still developing, but, but the, the, the image that we're starting to come into focus is if you have a source area, there's probably some amount of stuff you can't measure that's more stuck to the soil and as that stuff degrades it's kicking off these perfluoroalkyl acids things that are regulated that we measure for that slowly bleed out over time and create um a groundwater plume for example that can be very very large because these things are more water soluble than other classes of contaminants we we have sites that we work on where where plumes of pfas stretch um, miles not oh, feet miles so
0: that's because they they're water soluble and they don't break down i suppose so they can. So it literally can it, be
1: detected for... And, and there a lot of, of AFFF was used. So it's three factors.
0: Yeah. Now, so you, you did touch on regulation there. So can you just briefly give us a summary of what the current regulation status is for PFAS? Sure. Um, it's, it's, it varies is the short answer.
1: And it varies depending on what agency is, is, you, you have to abide by and where you are. So, for example... The U.S. EPA has set a 70 part per trillion lifetime health advisory for the sum of PFOS and PFOA, um, whereas some states in the United States have have put more progressive regulation in place. In some cases, it's not enforceable in in their guidelines. In other cases, they do have enforceable guidelines set for drinking water or other surface or groundwater soil, um, depending on where you are. So. It's confusing, but it is one of the challenges that it's one of the realities that we have to deal with working in this field. Um, for example, I'm in Massachusetts, and Massachusetts just established uh, one of the more progressive restrictions. So, where the EPA is saying, you know, you have to be below 70 parts per trillion for the sum of PFOS and PFOA, Massachusetts has said, well, that's not for different reasons. We're going to set a number of 20 parts per trillion for the sum of six PFAS, including PFOS and PFOA, but four other perfluoroalkyl acids as well. And so, um, you know, that's, New Jersey has more restrictive numbers, California and several other states, usually states that have um, more PFAS contamination for any number of reasons are the ones that set more restrictive values. Um, And so if you have liability or you have exposure you know, it's important to keep track of regulations because they're going to vary depending on which state you're in. And if there are no regulations at the state level, you default to the 70 part per trillion lifetime health advisory that the EPA has set. And those numbers are constantly changing. If you look, if you were to plot the regulations over time, independent of where you are, um, what you would see is that they start out with the the, the, the lifetime health advisory of 70 parts per trillion. And then states start to promulgate or put forth non-enforceable lower and lower values. And so over time, there's been a shift towards more restrictive regulation for PFAS as states start to think about, does the federal, uh, does the EPA level apply to us or should our situation be more restrictive? When they do that, it usually means lower concentrations, more restrictive, and in some cases, more analytes being regulated.
0: Okay, so... so Looking towards the next 10 years, you expect the regulation to get harder and hard to get more and more tight um, as time goes on? These. I, I,
1: I do. I, I, you know, I can't predict what will happen in any one place, but I think the trend you'll see will continue. As more regulations come put forth, they'll generally be lower and we may start to regulate more compounds um, like some states are doing, more compounds than just PFOS
0: and PFOA. Okay. Now, talking about the, the transport in groundwater... Because you've got such a, a wide range of these chemicals potentially forming from a source, do you ever see uh, differences in the, in the in the in the transport rate of these chemicals? Can you, what I'm getting towards is, can you see like almost like bands of, of different chemicals as you move yeah. further, and further away from a source?
1: That's that's a great question, and and this gets into um, fate and transport, and also gets into source attribution or forensics applications. And that's, that's my area of expertise. A lot of the work that I'm called in to do is to understand, you know, if, could, could this contamination have come from these known or purported sources? And in order to answer that question, you have to understand the, some of the things that you just alluded to. Um, not all PFAS is created the same. Some PFAS is larger, some PFAS is smaller, and they may have the same kind of functional groups or structures on the molecules. Some PFAS is similar sizes, but has different functional groups. And all of those factors contribute to how these things behave in the environment. And so broadly speaking, if you have a a source of PFAS, say it's a firefighting training area, as that stuff moves away from the source area in groundwater, the signature or the, the forensic signature of that PFAS changes. Smaller things move faster than larger things. And certain functional groups, for example, carbox- the perfluorocarboxylic acids, move faster than other, th- the things with other functional groups that may be this, a similar size, for example, the perfluorosulfonic acids or perfluorosulfonates. And so you have to keep that, if, as, as a signature changes, you have to keep that into account so you don't make the false assumption that, hey, the signature is different here, it must be another source. Well, that signature is often different just because it migrated so far from the source and inherently changed as it was migrating but it came from the same source one of the things that we've had success with is using it you know understanding fate and transport understanding how signatures can change there have been cases where you see things change in a way that cannot be explained by migration from a known source and that's when we first go back to the original data make sure the laboratory all the QAQC was in check um and if it was then we start to look for other sources that's been a fairly successful approach uh, we've had so understanding how the signature can change and and asking the question do patterns agree with having migrated from this source and where they don't there might be an indirect line of evidence that there's an additional source there when, uh, I should I should say that, you know, there are many tools in the toolbox when we do forensics approaches. You look at concentration gradients. You can look at multivariate statistics. You can look at diagnostic ratios like any other uh, environmental forensics application, whether you're doing PAHs or PCBs. It's the same set of tools for PFAS. And most importantly, it's multiple lines of evidence um, because you you never want to just hang your hat on 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 one diagnostic ratio or one approach to say, aha, this is the answer. We like to see two or three or four different lines of evidence all point to the same thing or at least be consistent with the same hypothesis before before we, um, you know, when we're doing these types of investigations.
0: So what sort of projects do you and Newfields work on with regards to PFAS?
1: Sure. So, so I sit within a, a group um, within Newfields that specializes in environmental forensics. So most of my project work not all of my project work these days is PFAS related. Most of that pertains to environmental forensics, understanding where it came from. Um, We have clients in industry. We have uh, clients at state, at the state level governments. We have legal firms that are clients. Uh, We've been representing a number of different um, um, groups. Uh, and Also, we have a very healthy research program. Um, In fact, Newfields is funded by Um, CERDIP, which is the research wing of the the Department of Defense and EPA, to, uh, to look at PFAS, and they fund a lot of PFAS research. We are funded to build a forensics library of PFAS source materials so that when people have contamination, they can go to this publicly available library and say, you know, By any number of metrics, does my source contamination match up with any of these kind of library materials? Um, And it really helps when we go to clients to try to solve problems. It really helps that we have that foot in the research door and are staying current with, you know, some of the academics that are doing the really groundbreaking work. Um, And we are contributing to that. So we're something we're very, very proud of.
0: Fantastic. So if if anybody, any of the listeners want to contact you with regards to, uh, if they've got a PFAS problem, or if they're interested in, in more about the research that you and Newfields are doing, are you happy to receive our questions? Absolutely,
1: I'm always I'm always happy to pick up the phone and have a conversation. Like I said, it's it's something I enjoy talking about, something I enjoy doing, um, and hopefully, you know, if we can't help, we're we're pretty transparent, and <laughs> but we'll always have the conversation.
0: Brilliant, and we'll we'll provide the uh, contact details for you at the uh, end of the podcast. So thank you Great. once again, um, and uh, best of luck with with the future research with PFAS.
1: Thank you very much, Richard.
0: So that's the end of this episode. My thanks to Dr. Mark Benotti for that fantastic discussion on PFAS. Um, I hope you enjoyed. I know I did. Uh, for more information about this podcast or any questions to Mark or anything about Newfields in particular, um, you can visit our website. That's uh, www.newfields.com. Alternatively, you can email us here at uh, rwilliams@newfields.com. And uh, any questions you have for Mark, we're more than happy to pass them on. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you join us again soon. Bye-bye.